Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Christina Newland. On the show this week, it's the long-awaited return to Wakanda in Black Panther 2. Iranian auteur Jafar Panahi's latest is No Bears. And on Film Club, World Cup fever kicks off with Panahi's tale of a group of young Iranian girls and their quest to watch a qualifying match in Offside. All coming up on Truth and Movies and the White Lies podcast. So, Christina, you are no stranger to David or myself, but for listeners who perhaps haven't heard you on for a while, could you give us a reminder of who are you? Uh, Well, I am a freelance film critic and film writer. I do a column in Little White Lies magazine called Threads on clothes in the movies, and I'm the lead film critic at the iNewspaper. Indeed. I was very excited to see um, how much you did like Decision to Leave. That was one of my favourite reviews that you wrote in the iPaper. You kind of feeling equally excited about the current issue subject, Glass Onion? I am, yeah. I actually haven't seen Glass Onion yet, but I really love Knives Out. And I just really like the return of this whole like whodunit little subgenre. Like we've got Confess Fletch as well coming up and that's really fun. So yeah, I'm quite keen. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Confess Fletch is really going under the radar, but it's a really fun little film and it made me kind of long for more murder mysteries. But uh, David, why was it that this murder mystery in particular was worth being the subject of a full Little White Lies issue? Well, I think, yeah, echoing what Christina said, I, I was a big fan of Knives Out. So there was generally a level of excitement for this one. And I, I think that the other key selling point for us selling point makes it sound so cynical but just being um lifelong fans of, of of filmmaker ryan johnson ryan johnson released his first film brick in 2005 and that's when the first issue of little white lies came out and i think we've we've sort of encountered him many times throughout his career as it's kind of gone in all these weird and wonderful directions and um you know we've just been massive Johnson stands for for a long time and uh in terms of covers for, of Little White Lies our paths should have crossed sooner but they for whatever reason didn't so this feels like a kind of homecoming almost you know uh <laughs> a little a, a, you know better better late than never cover so yeah we but one you know we love the film and uh it was it, it's such a, it was such a fun issue to make and we've got interviews with Johnson and Daniel Craig and you know lots of lots of stories exploring kind of the world of his world and the world of the film like things on like the Beatles and George Simenon and Stephen Sondheim so yeah lots of like it's a really I think it's a really fun issue that going into kind of the Ryan Johnson mindset and brain and, and his influences. I mean, would you go so far as to say this is one of those rare sequels that surpasses the original? Ooh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to do any any dirty here and because and, I think they're both great. I think that, that they, you know what, I think they're really like on a par in terms of how they're operating and what they're doing and the tone. And I think that the, the only difference is that Glass Onion... I think is kind of bigger and brighter and I think it's kind of political targets are even even bigger on this one. I wouldn't necessarily say better because I think they're both operating on, on a very sort of similar tenor and I think there's there's just not there's very little in in them to be honest. So I that's my diplomatic answer to that. <laughs> well, I'm I'm going to be less diplomatic and and say that I I thought Glass Onion is the superior film I must say and I I think it's an absolutely fantastic issue so uh, congrats you. to you. 
We should move on to another big release of the year, one of probably the most highly anticipated, Black Panther 2 Wakanda Forever. The leader of the Kingdom of Wakanda fight to protect their nation from invading forces in the wake of King T'Challa's death. While still processing their grief, they face a new threat from the undersea nation of Talukan. So, Christina, I suppose we'll start with the sort of you know, defining thing of this film that Chadwick Boseman passed away a couple of years ago, just before they were due to shoot it. How do you think it handles his absence? I feel like there are so many ways for this to go wrong. And it's it's sort of a great relief to see that really from the beginning, it sort of cuts right to the chase. It has King T'Challa dying of an unspecified illness, his sister Shuri trying to save him with the technology at her disposal and being unable to, and takes us on a on a really beautiful funeral procession with, with all the Wakandans in all white and a sort of mural of, of King T'Challa's face on the side of a, of a building. And I feel like it, it could dip into the maudlin when you're dealing with something that's so genuinely tragic and so meaningful for the viewers. But I think it does a pretty good job of kind of allowing Princess Shuri to deal with the grief and allowing the audience to process that grief throughout the film without overwhelming the audience with, you know, with that story rather than its own story. It lets itself stand on its own two feet, which I, I think is um, is a really smart decision. I think it's really sensitively handled. And because Ryan Coogler was such great friends with Chadwick Boseman, it does seem like, you know, that that friendship is really evident and really heartfelt in the way that it's dealt with. What about the more kind of like Marvel side of things? Like, I mean, you've kind of got these two dual threads going through, one being about grief, but then we've also got a kind of action adventure. Did both halves kind of work for you? Yeah, actually, I think they really did. Considering I I kind of, I'm not the biggest Marvel fan. I do really love Black Panther. I was very hesitant about whether this film could live up to the prior, especially given the circumstances. It runs nearly three hours, which is a little bit daunting, though not too too unusual for Marvel films. But for its length, I think it paces itself quite well. And I think crucially, the the whole concept of the antagonists is really well thought out. It's well thought out psychologically. It's well thought out in a kind of, in terms of like political posturing, in terms of these two warring kingdoms that actually have quite a lot in common, maybe a certain solidarity, because they're both historically marginalized in various ways. So I think like that there's a real kind of um, underpinning of like intelligence and coherence to the way that it sets up the story. And the action that comes out of that then feels like it has stakes. And David, I never know where it's going to go with you in Marvel. Ever since you gave The Eternal such a rave review, it, it, it kind of anything could happen. <laughs> so are we yay or nay on Wakanda forever? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big like phase four fan. If whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> so my memory of the original Black Panther was that I thought it was a, that that film for me was very much a film of two halves. And there was there was the, the first half of that film, I felt was re- very kind of radical and had some really big ideas about colonial legacies and representations of Africa on film and and in art. And then it kind of like lapsed into a fairly like it's almost like the kind of, you know, you mentioned it before, but there is a sort of like an internal infighting between like the needs of of a filmmaker like Ryan Coogler, who obviously I think has really big, impressive, important ideas about making films like this and, and the Marvel universe, which has like requirements in terms of, you know, how certain things interlock with other stories and how paths 
intertwine. And for me, the, that first film, with this internal battle, the, the kind of Marvel one ended up winning and it kind of frittered away quite a lot of goodwill I had towards it. So I, I was a bit mixed on it. With this one, I think what they've done is, I mean, firstly, like to say, it's like an incredible feat that they actually were able to make this film at all coherent, considering how much they would have had to change their original plans and and make it all fit in with this wider kind of world building that they have going on. But the, the experience of watching it for me felt a little bit more coherent in terms of that sort of duality and that that fight between the art and the Marvel. And yeah, so I actually enjoyed the film quite a bit. I think there's some, you know, there, there, there are some bits that feel a bit rushed. And like, I think my, my issues with Marvel are quite sort of granular sometimes. And it comes down to like the, how unexciting I find the action sequences and, and how, how the films are shot and just things like the visual effects sometimes just feel very bolted on and serve to kind of take you out of the world rather than immerse you in it. And I think all those problems are, are present here, but I think you do have a, a really compelling story and this, this sort of central thread of the kind of rogue nation of Talokan. I, I really like this idea of you have Wakanda that has these really precious mineral assets in, in vibranium, which is the, the kind of weird super mineral that is, is helping them become this this nation. And then you have, you, you kind of discover that there is another place like this on earth, under sea, and its rulers have similar kind of like fears about what the surface world are going to do. You know, with, with their kind of history of, of colonialist plunder, what are they going to do to acquire these minerals? And should it be a preemptive attack or should we be on the defensive? And, you know, it's very much of the first one. There is a kind of really interesting sort of geopolitical core at the film about like how do how do these nations fight how do they preserve how do they what decisions do you make in the names of people to actually kind of you know retain your culture and also be friendly with other nations as well and that stuff i find i thought it did that quite well in this one and, and didn't flub it in the way the first one did yeah i think that's like one of my favorite parts about it as well this idea of you know the way it borrows from our awareness of as you say, colonialist plunder of, of natural resources. And I guess you could say, if you were going to critique it, that whatever possibility there is of solidarity between these two kingdoms who both have this resource that's probably, you know, puts them in some way under threat, is that, of course, they, because of the nature of the Marvel, <laughs> you know, there needs to be protagonist and an antagonist. So, of course, the leader of the Talakans. Uh, the leader is, you know, this incredibly ruthless character who you, you kind of, you understand his motivations, you understand his, the reasons for his, his backstory, but he is fundamentally, he does become the antagonist in many ways. So you see like a, a kind of squandered opportunity for solidarity between these uh, historically oppressed people, which is, you know, it kind of almost slightly reverses itself a little bit, I would say. But then... By the time you get to the ending, there's a really nice cross-cutting sequence in a crucial moment, which I, I will give away, which shows the similarities between the Wakandans and the Talakans, which I think is quite nice. I mean, not only are we kind of dealing with the absence of Bozeman, but save something that I won't mention, we are we are also losing Killmonger, who is kind of known as being kind of, you know, an antidote to the a series of very bland villains that Marvel had had. Do you think that Namor kind of lives up to Killmonger? It's hard to do a comparison, I guess. It's such a different kind of different kind of villain. But I do think the motivations for his villainy are 
compelling and his hatred for the surface world or his hatred for, you know, for those that have oppressed and enslaved his people who were originally Yucatan Mayans, uh, which we know sort of historically brutalized by the, by the Europeans and the colonizers. That will make sense. The actor I think is, is very good at doing his job. Does he, is he as good as Michael B. Jordan? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a matter of taste, but I do think, I mean, he's a newcomer and I think he does a pretty, pretty good job of, of um, selling an 800 year old or however, however old he is. Yucatan Mayan kind of mutant who lives under, (laughs) under, yeah, Tammy God who lives under the sea. Dave, you mentioned a little bit about the kind of Afro-futuristic aesthetic. Do you think now that kind of, I suppose, the novelty of it has worn off, that it still kind of stands up in comparison to the sort of screensaver world of uh, <laughs> Thor, Love and Thunder? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that the elements like the costumes and and makeup are really important here. And, and, you know, I think that they haven't been skimped on at all. And I think it's sort of, there's lots of fascinating depictions of tribal, African tribal wear and, you know, envisaging how that would look in a kind of Futuro setting. And I think it's drawing on this whole raft of films from like 70s through to the 90s that did explore that kind of intersection between those that like, you know, imagining kind of ancient African art displaced into like a, a futuristic setting and, and and yeah i'm sure if you talk to to kugler or, or or the or production designer they'll they'll give you like a million nods to all the kind of record covers and films and 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 tv shows that they've they've kind of homaged there it's it's weird because i think on that on that front the you know the the production design is quite is is interesting on 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 when it comes to like the characters and the actors but i feel it's it's just like anything bigger than that it maybe falls a bit short. Like one thing that I feel they didn't really do at all in this film, which they did more in the first one, was was actually kind of sell you the idea of Wakanda as this kind of utopia. You know, there was one kind of external sweeping shot of them arriving in Wakanda and seeing this, you know, it was like this Shanghai or something. It didn't necessarily look like this sort of super state. I maybe wish they'd done more to sort of show why this place is is kind of so far ahead of of the rest of the world, just to give you a sense of like what they have and what other nations don't have. But like the the costumes are incredible. It's it's one of the best costumed Marvel mini sort of sub-franchises by by a long shot. I couldn't agree more. That was quite a lot of qualifiers though, um, <laughs> franchise, but that felt a bit damning with a uh, faint praise. But, uh, sorry, Christina, you, I mean, obviously you know all things fashion and clothes in film. Was there anything from Ruthie Carter's costume designs that really stood out for you? I mean, so much of it is amazing, but I do get what you're saying, David, in that in terms of like the costuming is incredible, but the, like, the overall aesthetic outside of that is a little bit muddy. And like quite dark sometimes. So like the the kind of, there's like the larger visual palette is not, does not live up to the costuming, I guess is the, is the kind of issue there, I think. But Ruth Carter, of course, Spike Lee's go-to costume designer. She even, I mean, even the, the coming to America sequel, the, the clothes in that were absolutely amazing, even though the film's not great. She's just got incredible eye. And I mean, I really liked the more, the more subtle stuff. So it's stuff that you see like Shuri wearing on like a, on a day off or like Michaela Cole, you see her in it as well. There are these really like kind of muted monochrome sort of sleek 
almost look like athleisure wear and they've got like sort of things like laced up around the sleeves and it just it looks like Yeezy or it looks like Balenciaga like it's it's really kind of borrowing from modern fashion and then you see stuff that's like the more kind of extravagant like the stuff that Angela Bassett wears as Queen Raimondo which are all these really deep jewel tones you know traditionally royal colors um there's one dress in particular that she wears which feels very symbolic given what happens in the scene but I can't really say but it's sort of purple ombre so it's this you know the traditionally the most royal color and then it's ombre and it fades to white at the bottom of the dress and so there's something very interesting symbolically with what's happening in terms of a power vacuum there that I won't get into but it's so smart in terms of like the symbolic levels of what it's doing as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you could kind of just get swept up in all of that. But I suppose my issue with it came from, I never got it. And, and it is the scale, as you both kind of spoke about. I, I really never got a sense of like, the size of this place, how many people were in this kingdom, what exactly they were kind of fighting for, because it all basically came down to sort of misunderstanding and kind of a, a lack of diplomacy. And I don't know whether those stakes are that thrilling and yeah and and, uh, you know the whole thing is also just deeply sad because obviously Chadwick Boseman is no longer with us and um can I just say also that I went into this kind of not knowing like tell me if I would if 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 I should have known this but I I didn't know what like who was going to be the Black Panther And and I'm sort of like wondering now Oh, was the film is part of the film about who is going to be the next Black Panther, and would it be a spoiler to say who is, or is that a known thing now? I can actually answer that question because so what happened was that the big mystery was going to be who is going to end up being the next Black Panther, yeah. but unfortunately they had a deal with Lego, and Lego started putting out products with the next. But I mean, I don't want to spoil it in case people don't know, <laughs> with the sort of character in their new Black Panther suit. So they sort of had to let go as that being like the big hook as a mystery because, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we can say apropos of absolutely nothing that Letitia Wright is, is very good in the film, I thought. And I think she's a really good actress in general. Like, I, 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 I don't think I've seen anything with her in she's been bad in. She holds the film apropos of nothing. Yeah, no, she really does. She really does. And there's some there's some really key moments that, particularly towards the conclusion of the film, I think that we really are like kind of there with her as audience members, as people aware of what's happened in real life. And I think also in terms of as human beings dealing with, you know, that we've all had grief and loss and stuff in our lives. I think it's uh, one of the few Marvel films I've seen that seems like it deals actually deals seriously with the death of a character rather than, you know, some of the other films, um, ways of dealing with it. it and I mean, I, I don't want to far be it for me to sound spoilery, but the fact that it lets itself be so downbeat, I think is, is actually really effective and very moving. Yeah. It, it does like double down on, on its, on its kind of like themes of grief. They're not just kind of like, let's get this out of the way. Let's have this 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 more moment of mourning, so then we can go off and have some have some like cool action sequences. It's it's really kind of like parcelled out through the film, and in a way that's quite pretty bold. I thought, yeah, and ex- and extremely emotionally punishing as well. I think you know, mm. you heard it here first, folks. Go watch the new Marvel. It's emotionally punishing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, David, do you want to go first with your scores in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? <laughs> yeah, I would probably say threes across the board, but like very high threes. Like I definitely liked it as a Marvel movie. In comparison to something like The Eternals, which I did actually, I still really like. Sorry, guys. But like, um, <laughs> I didn't feel it had that, it had that level of, of I, like the ideas were, were kind of articulated in a way that really kind of like got to me. What, this was more of a kind of like, yeah, we've, it's, a, it's a, a job well done all round. I, ne- I don't think I was ever really like, like ramped up to a level four, like this is really good. So yeah, I'm sort of down the middle on this one. Threes across the board. Christina, what about you? I think my expectations were quite low. So I'd say maybe a two anticipation wise. And then slowly, I think it went up and up in my estimation. So I'd say like a three while watching and probably a four by the time I was, I was out. I, mm-hmm. I was, um, yeah, I was surprised by how much I was really brought along by it, given the running time and how much I was moved by it as well. For me, I guess in anticipation, maybe somewhere between a one and a two. Not not because I didn't really love the first film. I just, I think there's a sort of Chadwick Boseman death pandemic thing that I need to work through. I never watched Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I actually find like the kind of thought of his his departure slightly unbearable. So yeah, wasn't looking forward to it. Maybe three in enjoyment and in retrospect. I mean, certainly everybody does what they're going to do very well but kind of sitting within that grief there was such sort of naked franchise spinning with a couple of other characters and stuff so I sort of didn't entirely escape into like this is an artful cathartic grief uh, rather than just sort of a way to sell Legos but yeah. (laughs) Can I can I just quickly say one thing just before we move on that I want to say I have never stayed to see the post-credit sequence of a Marvel movie, never, and I and I and I never will, because I feel it's like spoiling. Like you just you're going to find that stuff out in the next film anyway, aren't you? So like, what what what's the point in in staying for them? I often don't stay just because I have to pee so bad because yeah. the film is so damn long. <laughs> that too. That too. <laughs> I mean, the the worst version of that is like a Morbius where it, actually the entire film was just a setup for a post-credit sequence <laughs> rather than the other way around. But yes, th- this one is um, certainly no Morbius. But yeah, we should get on to something a little bit more artful than Jared Leto. No bears. You're listening to Truth and Movies. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover on the platform. Recently, I've been dipping into the Cut to Black collection, a specially curated season celebrating black artistry on screen. Med Hondo's acerbic 1967 debut, Osun, is an absolute must-see. As is Rangano Nioni's spellbinding first feature, I Am Not a Witch, from 2017. And I'm counting down to Lars von Trier's new show, The Kingdom Exodus. Movie going into miniseries is huge, and I hear from my colleagues who are at the Venice Film Festival that The Kingdom is really something special. I'm pleased to see that Movie is streaming newly restored versions of both original seasons from November 13th, with the new season beginning on November 27th. And I wouldn't want to binge watch it all, so it's great that episodes are premiering weekly. 
With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected by their dedicated team of curators. You can choose from an eclectic mix of timeless classics, award-winning masterpieces, and festival-fresh gems. It's like having your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash LWLies. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash LWLies for a whole month of great cinema for free. The film portrays two parallel love stories in which the lovers struggle with hidden and unavoidable obstacles, the force of superstitions and the mechanics of power. Jafar Panahi plays himself as the director pulling the pieces together. So, David, um, do you think you're going to be able to recap a little bit of the situation of what's happening with Jafar Panahi? Because I think that's key to understanding this film. Yeah, I mean, to put it very briefly, I mean, he is someone who has been under house arrest for over a decade in Iran for various um, trumped up charges to do with his uh, status as uh, an activist, an artist and a critic of the Iranian government. He's someone who I actually um, have a very kind of close emotional relationship with him in terms of in terms of where I'm coming from, because he's actually like the one of the I think he was like the first one of the first filmmakers I ever interviewed for the film Offside, actually, which we're going to be talking about in a bit. But um, it was it was like a phone interview in Tehran. And, you know, back then I'd, I'd only he was known for these films the white balloon. I think the the film that he's most known for is called the white balloon. And yeah, he's he's so the, the the white balloon and the mirror were were two and the circle were two, with were the three films that he was he was kind of really known for. And he was and those films are really kind of like you know oh he is the the heir to like Abbas Kiarostami and you know he's he is the kind of one of the key players in the Iranian new wave and I I think it. I look back kind of slightly daunted of like, oh man, I can't believe that I was speaking to this like, you know, legend when I was like a kind of pop reporter and had no idea of like the, the gravity and honour of, of, of actually getting to speak to him, seeing as, you know, obviously he ain't doing interviews now. <laughs> I think part of his story is that since his incarceration in 2010, he's been, he's been under house arrest, but has been making films semi-regularly which have been playing in festivals and have been snuck out of the country in by in various ways and his first film he made under house arrest this is not a film you know he he is he's kind of turned into this kind of his early films were sort of critical of Iranian society and kind of contradictions and about certain policies uh, many of which are kind of like misogynistic and just just plain idiotic um but like post sort of 2010 run of films are exploring this idea of like being this irrepressible force and that you can't stop someone from creating art and this is not a film is essentially him in his flat with a with a camera just filming the 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 idea that he had for a movie but you know he's doing it in this this way that's quite experimental and abstract but it's completely moving the way he does it and you know he features in a lot of these modern films as well and as a character he's he's just this he just seems like this very chill lovely straight talking and you know he he doesn't present himself as an angry filmmaker he's sort of almost accepting the absurdity of the situation and trying to sort of channel that into his art i think that in the interim he won he won the golden bear at, at berlin for his film taxi tehran uh, which was set mostly in a in a ta- taxi that he's driving, and this new film No Bears is kind of 
it's again it's a progression of what he's doing here and it's it's actually like mad wildly because he's he's now like in he's currently in prison for for charges that nobody really knows he, yeah he actually went to protest the, the arrest of one of his colleagues Mohammad Rasulov is another Iranian director and whilst doing that was arrested himself and incarcerated so yeah no bears is is you know he's playing himself uh, or this version of himself and we the film opens with this love story playing out in a town on the turkish border and in that kind of classic way that a lot of films do where you have a scene and then the you get to a point and then it, the camera pulls back and you see it's a movie with this one you have that that device and the camera pulls back and it turns out that he's directing over zoom on on his laptop so you know the, the the again moving on with that idea of like you can't stop someone from like making art like there's the technology and you know it, it's just an impossible thing to do so like you know we see him directing this film from this little village on on the other side of the border in Iran in this little village and the film that kind of ends up going to explore firstly the idea of how someone in his situation can keep making films but also there there is a more kind of like parable element to it as well where i guess sort of like looking at the a kind of political microcosm and the this stuff that happens in the town involving him taking a picture of of two people and a couple under a tree that, that would stand as evidence against them and there's villagers wanting to sort of acquire that i mean this sounds very very contrived and weird and and i'm I'm trying to explain it in the most simple way possible but it's like you know all all of his films now but you know by requirement are these kind of like nesting metafiction kind of things and 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 it, and it makes them sound really inapproachable and and technical and intellectual and they're really not they're they're just very easy to to, to understand and he, you know the characters and the people in them are just warm and and real and and you know that they're, they're infuriating and 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 interesting and you know one of the film things he's got and again we can kind of go back when we talk about offside is like he's always just been great at capturing a kind of naturalism and humanity in people even when they are kind of operating in a way that is counterintuitive to their lives and politically, yeah, I, I really like the new film. Well, I, what you say about it being kind of metafiction by necessity, I think is really interesting because it, I mean, his tendency to use non-professional actors, his tendency to kind of slip in and out of the role of, of actor or iteration of himself in, in this case with No Bears. Like you say, it could seem contrived, but because it's by necessity, because you kind of intrinsically understand the circumstances that are that are kind of the engine for that, it just feels very naturalistic. And it, it kind of, it, it allows him to make statements about the necessity of picking up a camera and if, if for no other reason, recording the lives of these people living under these oppressive circumstances. So there's like a there's a hopefulness in his work in spite of the fact that things are, are so incredibly bleak uh, in so many ways. And of course, you know, look, looking at the film now, preempting the fact that he's now in prison is is quite a difficult thing to to swallow. But there is still some kind of fundamental. Um, I mean, he's just a, a, at a risk of trotting out a cliche like a deeply humane filmmaker. So in spite of all that. I guess, cinematic playfulness or self-reflexivity. You have these people that feel so incredibly real. And and even within the mechanism of the film, so there's a film within a film, but the lead actress, 
they're they're trying to get um, fake passports to be smuggled over the border as a plot of the film within a film. And she doesn't realize that actually they're real passport smugglers or forgers or, you know, so, so these things are kind of like cycling back on themselves in perpetuity, which is, you know, fascinating. That, that, that just was one big ramble. Sorry. No, that was beautiful. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's, it's a very moving film. Um, I suppose he didn't know the context under which it was going to be released. So perhaps it would have kind of taken on a bit of a different tone had he just been, you know, this picture of him in house arrest in this is uh, not a film kind of, you know, trying to come up with clever ways to sneak USBs of his movies out across to a film festival. It's sort of a, a bleak prospect when you imagine uh, somebody who has sort of been so ingenious in still being able to create their art and you sort of see the kind of final lifelines being cut because, well, one would assume there's not much available within prison itself sorry that's an incredibly somber note to go on well it's it's interesting one one thing i just want to say about this film which which i think is markedly different to to all his other films and and probably quite telling is that if you if you watch his other films although they they're dealing with kind of quite bleak subject matters and his his own bleak situation he always ends on this this kind of grace note of like there is hope there is positivity there is beauty in the world and that's going to get me by and this is maybe the first film where he doesn't really do that like it it kind of ends on a on a, on quite a downer and he there isn't that sense of like things are going to get better i mean you know this is this I, I worry for him maybe i'm trying to think back but i think this is the first film of his i've seen that has ended on a note of real like cynicism about like where, where the world is headed or and, and where where his country is headed so that was quite bracing for me to see yeah. And I mean, the state of Iranian cinema is obviously under threat in some ways. Obviously, his son has, um, had this film earlier this year. Was it called Hit the Road? Which sort of, you know, there is stuff still out there being created. But I mean, do you, how do you kind of view him in within the kind of wider picture of Iranian cinema, Christina? Uh, I mean, it's great that Hit, uh, Hit the Road is fantastic as well, by the way. It's probably one of my favorite films of the year. So it's lovely to see that there's a direct legacy there with his son making films. I mean, I think it's fair to say that his presence will continue to loom large in Iranian cinema and in world cinema in spite of his current incarceration. In terms of what actually happens to him, I guess we can only, you know, we can only hope for the best. Yeah, I mean, it's just a sort of horrifying situation. It's hard to, it's hard to really parse. I think now that with the revolution that's happening in in Iran at the moment, and the, I think the great great hope is that they'll we'll see a lot more women directors working and women activists working working in Iran. There aren't many on the scene, and you you kind of hope that if this kind of current uprising is successful and 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 sticks, then you you know this, it will actually bring this new this completely new fresh wave of artistic talent to a wider audience. So I guess yeah, keep watching that. Well, we can also only hope that kind of if this film succeeds, that also keeps the pressure on um, his release. Um, You know, keeping him in the news, I think, can only be a good thing. Um, But we should get some scores on this. Uh, Christina, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I would say probably threes and then four, definitely by the conclusion, but sort of the enjoyment. I mean, enjoyment's always a weird one, isn't it? With... 
<laughs> with a film with th- this many um, repercussions and ramifications. But yeah, I'd say the more I thought about it, the better it became in my mind. Yeah, I'd probably go go similar to this. I think that it's a hard film to enjoy because, again, by necessity, it's a bit bitty and sort of bit these bits folded into each other. And had he had a bit more freedom, you do wonder whether he would have had more time to kind of work through the material. But it's definitely a four in retrospect, especially considering his situation and like the sense of it's, it's a political act that he's making this with this film. And, you know, you've got to, you've got to respect that. Yeah, for me, maybe a two in anticipation, just because I was at Venice and, you know, they did the press conference and they kind of set a place for him, which was such an incredibly sad image. So it was kind of quite a, a mournful trudge into the screening room. Um, and yeah, maybe, yeah, four in enjoyment and four in, in, in retrospect. It, it, I love the sort of meta puzzle box of it all and yeah it, it it's sort of um i think it's a beautiful piece of work and you know it's, it's deeply sad as it as it sort of should be now to a slightly cheerier um, film of his offside Iran is galvanised by a match to be played at the Azadi Stadium between Bahrain and Iran, the victor of which will qualify for the World Cup. Although women are banned from watching, a number of them, undeterred, attempt to buy tickets and enter disguised as men. So, David, you said this was the film that you spoke to him about all those years ago. Do you remember any like, particular insights he gave into it? Do you know what? I did spend a little bit of time last night trying to find the original transcript, but... I think just because I I believe it's on this old hard drive I've I've got that you have to like plug in to actually make work. It's like a kind of 250 megabyte hard drive that you have to like plug in. So it was this was this is from the days of the days of yore. So I wasn't able to find it and 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 to be honest I'm kind of glad because I know they would be absolute worst questions possible <laughs> considering uh considering like I know that my knowledge of contemporary Iran was meagre at best. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think I believe I was probably just asking him like, oh, did you, was it a real football match? Or, you know, did you film it a real football match? Or, you know, just dumb little kind of inquisitive things like that. And I'm sure he was very, I, I remember him being very kind of friendly and answering all my, all my stupid questions. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was a real trip to, to revisit this actually. Because you know, as again, it's been it's been so long, and I maybe don't think it's in in retrospect. I think like he's it's interesting to see that he's. I think he's gone on to do more interesting films, and this is probably like of all the films he's made, it's the most sort of like superficially enjoyable, straight shooting. It's almost like a Ken Loach film. It's sort of social realism done very very straight, but with his kind of like his sense of people and society and place and men and women. And, you know, like it's, it's all, it's all in there. I mean, I think in some, in some ways that's quite nice in that it's, it's accessible. You know, I think it would be the the one that I would suggest to people in in some ways, if they were, you know, maybe not cinephiles or not super into the idea of some of his other films. Like it's because as you say, it's straightforward and it's also quite funny in its own kind of dark way. I mean, the whole sequence where, you know, one of the girls needs to use the toilet and there's no women's toilets. And he's like, you know, the guard is like this guy trying to figure out how to let get her into the men's toilets is just sort of farcical and, and quite, so there is like the, there, that lightness is, um, 
is nice, but there's also this incredible feeling of dread that builds up through the film, you know, where these, these young soldiers don't really, you know, they don't seem particularly bothered one way or the other. They're just doing their national service. They're not that interested in these girls having snuck in and being caught, but there's this, you know, figure looming over the film, the chief of what's going to happen when this, you know, kind of higher superior finds out. And so there's a sense of dread of what's going to happen possibly to these girls, which could be terrible. And I think, unfortunately, you can't help but to read contemporary events into that. So these are the morality police or the vice police or however, you know, however exactly, you know, it's said, but presumably these are, you know, the same vice police that detained and ended up killing Masa Amini. So there's that thing of, it just looms a bit heavy over this film, even though the film is somewhat lighthearted in tone in certain ways, what could actually happen is horrific. And that, that dread never quite goes away. And David, when you suggested this, you also said that, you know, it would be a good way to kind of kick off World Cup fever. Has it sort of reflected on any of that? That's really in the news. Well, yeah. A a more general point first, I think, is that seeing no bears in this and thinking about Panahi's work in the past, I think that, like, there is a feeling with me, and and it's certainly consolidated in a film like Offside, that he's creating these portraits of, of Iran to be seen by other countries. He's always looking to, to sort of, his films are missives of like, you know, here's what's happening over here. You, you, you're not going to believe it. And, you know, Offside is obviously a very good example of this because like maybe an Iranian viewer of that film at that time might have had a, had a complete, especially a male viewer, would have had a completely different reading of, of the film and, and the, the, the fact that these female characters just want to watch a football match and that to them, might have, might, they might have agreed that, no, that's not a done thing. Whereas obviously to most other countries in the world, that it, you, know, we, you know, the absurdity is, is, is front and centre. If the stories you read about the, the, you know, what's happening in the World Cup in Qatar and the, the levels of the religious strictures they have over there, is that if that's a, a kind way of putting it. And people have, who are kind of going over there to enjoy this big thing and having to sort of maybe put their morals to, to the side for... For a second, and you know, there's. I think a lot of people. There's a, obviously there's a lot of money involved with this with this as well, and lot, there's a lot of people who are having to. There are some things of uh, examples of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Human rights abuses, but also like you know, people, people, people turning a blind eye to to some some like really gnarly stuff. And yeah, you know, you you watch a film like like offside and you and you you know you, you kind of think is it is it really that far away like to have a misogynist society to have a homophobic society you know like the contradictions and and the absurdity i think exists in both just what you know you just with both examples of reality and fiction you're just like why what's the point what who wins out you know what's the gain who wins like you know this is just this is creating bad vibes for everyone you know <laughs> not just the people who it's affecting but the people who are kind of enforcing it for reasons they don't really know you know why so you know that i think i think it's a fun film to revisit and actually like getting hold of a copy of the film was not that easy i don't think it's like streaming anywhere at the moment it's available on 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 dvd i believe but not 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 cheaply so someone listening in the world of distribution should uh should should to get out and get that one playing again because it feels like very of the moment yeah i mean it does feel timely even with outside of football you know like a lot of wwe stuff being held in in saudi arabia 
and that that creating a lot of problems. And some wrestlers actually on the on the roster refusing to wrestle there because of human rights abuses and misogyny and things of that nature. And yeah, there's a obviously there's a bit of a money spinning element to it all, which is insidious. And we're not doing a lot to, I guess, discourage that kind of um, behavior or these kinds of abuses if we're we're taking part. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got very complicated yes. feelings around the whole thing. I grew up in an Islamic fundamentalist state. I go back all the time. Uh, there's a kind of what I love in like Panahi's films is that you're sort of capable to have this rather complex picture of like these people are still deserving of fun just because your government or, or these authoritarian figures have this doesn't kind of define an entire people. When I was a little girl on the banks of the Nile, I would have loved to have gone to a football match. <laughs> and it, 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 it's complicated. You don't want to excuse anything but you also don't want to write off an entire people and say that they don't get to have access to culture and fun football and all of these things so you know subject for more than a sort of 10 minute film club review at the end of a podcast probably if you've got thoughts on these films you can email truth and movies at tco london or tweet us at lw lies Next week, James Gray and Charlotte Wells both reflect upon childhoods in Armageddon Time and After Sun, and I got to talk to Paul Mescal and Frankie Corio about their roles in Wells' film. While on Film Club, it's Gray's debut, where something is afoot in Little Odessa. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Christina Newland. The podcast is produced by PCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. 